Gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Hey, listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. What a long 36 hours it's been. I went up to uh, New Hampshire, and as many listeners know, I love New Hampshire. I don't claim to love it in mid-January, but I still like it a lot. And uh, we should all celebrate... Stephen Hayes's frugality um, here at the Dispatch and his choice of hotels that we stayed at, but I, I um I have a general policy that that all things being equal, stay in a hotel that has a bar, and we didn't do that. But it was a great time. The Dispatch meetup was great. We did this thing co-hosted with the Josiah Bartlett uh, Senator, and they got great people there, and we had a great turnout. I mean. It's the room didn't look full, but the problem was the room looked like it was big enough for like the for like an Orthodox Jewish wedding. I mean, it was just an enormous room. I'd say we had probably had I don't know what the final count was, 250 north of 250 there to come out on a dreary, freezing cold night in New Hampshire when there are a lot of other events going on because it's the primaries it was pretty great. It's nice that everybody knows that I don't take compliments well, um, so I always start saying things like, I know you don't like compliments, but, and then I, I, I don't mean this as a humble brag. I, I, it was very touching to me. Some of the things that people were saying, I don't want to out specific. One dude asked me for a hug. Lots of stories going back to how they first started reading me from NR days and all that. And lots of people asked me to sign books and look, it's, it's nice. I got to admit, it's nice. It's, um, not just me, you know, a lot of us at the dispatch, we made sort of career decisions that felt a little fraught, you know, from time to time. <laughs> and, um, and to hear the gratitude from people for the dispatch, for what we're doing, for sticking to our guns, um, all that kind of stuff. People, a lot of people wanted to talk about Zoe and Pippa, just incredibly nice, diverse, ideologically diverse, uh, socioeconomically diverse, I will say, you know, it's not too shocking given the demographics of New Hampshire that there weren't a lot of, you know, Samoans and Somalis there and that kind of thing. But it was a pretty white crowd, but it was a, just a great bunch of people who clearly felt like there's a connection here with the dispatch and what we're trying to do. And um, that's just wildly gratifying. But getting up there stunk. I was going to use more graphic language. Uh, we had to, well, I, my flight was, it kept coming in. I kept, I was getting constant. JetBlue does this thing where they send you updates on your flight, like literally every like four to 12 minutes. And it's like, your flight is now six minutes later. Now it's nine minutes later. Now it's three minutes earlier. And I could just tell that this was bad news. And I've been so burned, not by JetBlue, but by like United and Delta have really jerked me around several times. They keep sending you these updates about how the plane's just going to be delayed until it's too late to book a different flight. And then they just tell you it's canceled. So I was very nervous about that. So I was only supposed to leave at 3.30. And the reason I booked that late flight and I booked it into Boston was that I was supposed to do CNN at noon. And then, of course, the the Inside Politics CNN show was 
canceled, which is, you know, it's fine by me, but it meant I could have flown straight to Man- Manchester if I had known I wasn't going to have to do that. Instead, I had to fly to Boston. Anyway, so I spent about five hours, six hours at National Airport with a lot of cranky people because a lot of flights were delayed or canceled. And then flew to Boston and rented a car and then drove from Boston to Concord and um, didn't sleep well. Had to do a board meeting. That's why I went out the night before for the dispatch. Um, After the board meeting, I had to do this other podcast interview um, where I was interviewed. And then um, then I had to write a G file. I did get to go to one of my favorite um, cigar places, even though I must say their selection is not fantastic. It's this place, Castro's Back Room. There are different ones in, in New Hampshire. I went to the one in Concord. But the place is just like authentically New Hampshire dive cigar place and I, I nice people there interestingly i would say when i'm traveling around the country the tv show, when it's not espn it is fox news and almost every cigar place i go to um tells you something about the demographics and it also sometimes makes me nervous that someone will recognize me and be less than Nice, but that's never happened at a cigar place. Anyway, so, um, and then we did this event and then we went out to dinner and then I didn't, and then I didn't get to bed till midnight and didn't sleep well and then came back up here. So anyway, if I'm, I feel like I complain about always being tired a lot on here and I apologize for that. And I don't know exactly why that's the case other than the fact that I'm out of shape and don't get enough sleep and work too hard. And, um, and the times I claw out of my week to be able to do these solo podcasts in particular are always times when I'm tired. It doesn't mean I'm always tired. I just tired a lot and I'm tired a lot when I do this. And so, and I am transparent with my audience. So I reveal it too much. It's also a way to sort of stall as I try to figure out what I'm going to talk about. So last night, apparently Donald Trump had this, I will actually read it. You know, I don't do a lot of reading on here, but um, I'm sure by the time anyone hears this, you'll have heard about it. Um, Some people aren't even shocked by it. So I gather at 1 a.m. Thursday morning, I'm recording this Thursday afternoon um, because we're doing the Dispatch podcast in the morning. Trump posted on his Truth Social thing, a president of the United States must have full immunity, without which it would be impossible for him slash her to properly function. Any mistake, even if well-intended, would be met with almost certain indictment by the opposing party at term end. Even events that, quote-unquote, cross the line must fall under total immunity, or it'll be years of trauma trying to determine good from bad. There must be certainty. Example, you can't stop police from doing the job of strong and effective crime prevention because you want to guard against the occasional, quote, rogue cop or, quote, bad apple. Sometimes you just have to live with the, quote, great, but slightly imperfect, unquote. All presidents must have complete and total presidential immunity or the authority and decisiveness of a president of the United States will be stripped and gone forever. Hopefully this will be an easy decision. God bless the Supreme Court. I struggle with this. Whether to focus on the stupidity of things or the, the, the sinisterness of things, right? I, this is a pas de deux 
of sinister stupidity or stupid sinisterness. First of all, it's unconstitutional, just flatly unconstitutional what he is, what he's saying or implying here. The Constitution flatly says in the text that the president, um, once impeached, can be uh, charged and tried for crimes. And even Trump's lawyer in court conceded that, right, which is why this argument, and I'm going to get to the people invoking it on Twitter fighting with me in a second, um, but like Trump's lawyers in court conceded or argued that the president has to be impeached and removed if he is going to be tried for a crime. Um, and if he's not impeached and removed, he cannot be tried for a federal for an official act as president. Right? That was the key sort of argument. I understand that there are debatable, colorable, plausible, quasi-plausible textual interpretations of the of, of the Constitution that lend some credence at some at some level uh, to the the claims made by um, Trump's lawyer. I'm sorry, there's this giant smudge on my glasses I'm trying to deal with. Um, look, uh, there's a argument to be made on strict textual grounds. I think it's a bad one, but it's not it's not worth debating, right? I mean, it's not just dismissible out of hand that a president has to be, for an official act, has to be impeached and removed before he be tried for a crime. I get that. There's an argument there. Fine. Of course, this contradicts, and we've talked about this before on here, this contradicts what Trump's own lawyers, when he was impeached for January 6th stuff, said, which was that you cannot impeach a president who's out of office or who's about to be out of office. And um, as I said at the time, I think that is an incredibly dangerous, incredibly stupid argument when you actually think about the consequences of it. Because it means that presidents could get away with doing all sorts of terrible things right at the end of their last week, last few days, last month of their presidency on the assumption it would take too long to get an impeachment up and going and they could get away with it. It was stupid back then because there were also people saying that like he shouldn't be tried for crimes, right? But now the argument is, Trump's lawyer's argument is, is that a president can be impeached and removed long after he's out of office. The, if there's the view that there was an, a, an official act that was impeachable. Their lawyer, the upshot of the lawyer's position in those hearings, what, 10 days ago, was that if you want to try Trump for a crime, you first have to impeach and remove him now for it. So we would need an impeachment hearing. But then there was, I'm confused on this point. Since he, wa he was impeached for it, but not removed, that means... The, the underlying crimes cannot be charged because there's like a double jeopardy type thing floating around in there. Okay, I think all of that is incredibly stupid and I'm not going to waste my time or yours getting in the weeds on it. But the point I just want to make very quickly here is that in Trump's post, he makes no mention of any of that. And it was really fascinating. You know, I, I spent some time in airports today, so like I was pissed off and pissed off about this. So I tweeted a few times about it um, because... Just going at the plain text of what Trump says here, he just says presidents should be immune from all the crimes, any crimes. He doesn't even say official crimes. He just says from crime or I'm sorry, from mistakes that 
cross the line that are analogous to a rogue cop or a bad apple who happens to be a sitting president. He says all presidents must have complete and total presidential immunity. According to his own logic here, there is no reason why Joe Biden can't have Donald Trump assassinated today, tomorrow, right? Send SEAL Team 6, ravenous dogs, um, sharks with freaking lasers on their head, whatever. Um, Biden could have Trump executed today as long as he did it as an official act um, and not be liable for criminal prosecution. I think that is wrong. I am not a fan of Donald Trump. I don't want to see Donald Trump to be the next president of the United States. I don't want to see Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee. I think it'd be very bad for America if he became president of the United States or even the Republican nominee. But I'll just say flat out, I do not want him killed. I do not want him assassinated. And I certainly don't want him killed by the sitting president of the United States. Um, and the idea that presidents can just commit any crime they want with total legal immunity First of all, again, unconstitutional, violated by the actual Constitution, clearly rebutted by all of the founding documents about how they talked about the presidency. It's really rebutted by all of the founders' views of the role of government in the state and why we didn't have a king. It is um, just preposterous on its face. It is also incredibly duplicitous and disingenuous that Trump is arguing that he needs immunity for all these things for high-minded reasons of statecraft and not because he's trying to stay out of jail. I mean, I get he's trying to stay out of jail. I don't blame him for trying to stay out of jail or at least stay out, keep from getting convicted. Um, but pretending that anybody thinks that this has anything to do about the, the proper, like he's at all concerned about the proper conduct of presidents or, or anything like that or the constitutional norms or rules is ridiculous. And so one of the things that was very frustrating today was all these people who were coming at me because I said, what is what in here prevents Biden from killing Donald Trump and people are like, oh, you don't understand the argument. It has to do with, you know, he has to be impeached. And I was like, well, that's all great. Except you're not giving, like you're, 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 you're reading things into Trump's text here that isn't there. He's not alluding to his, his argument in court about how he'd have to be impeached first. He's just blat, flatly, blankly saying that, uh, or flatly saying that presidents have blanket immunity. For any crimes and why you would give Trump of all people the benefit of the doubt in in reading into him things that he doesn't say. And uh, and, you know, like a bunch of people were like, well, maybe he just so clearly doesn't think that murdering an opponent is just merely crossing a line. It could be, you know, like maybe he thinks that that wouldn't be covered by what he's talking about. It's like, well, why are you taking this guy's, why are you taking Donald Trump's word for anything about any of this kind of stuff? And it's just sort of astounding the way it's this whole, you know, the Adam White thing about, you know, it's, it's don't take him literally, take him seriously has become, take him hypothetically, where people just read into Trump excuses that Trump never offers for himself, explanations that Trump never makes reference to, to let Trump off the hook for his own words and actions. It's so pathetic. And look, like my, you know, let's, let's Rand Paul, right? I don't like Rand Paul. Rand Paul used to be a little suck up to me, wrote me a note or two, um, back when he thought he was going to be a president, run for president. 
Uh, he was on a charm offensive. I think he's one of the most fraudulent BS, non-libertarian, uh, cynical jackasses out there. You know, his defenders love it. It's very similar to Trump stuff, right? Where his defenders, much like his dad's defenders or Robert Kennedy Jr. defenders, they cherry pick the things they like or the things that they read into these people and say, well, they, these are the, you know, this is the reason why I think so-and-so is principled, right? But Rand Paul is, you know, he's not as racist as his father was. Ron Paul was a flat-out racist. He was part of these absolutely abhorrent racist newsletters and was tied to all sorts of horrible racist people. And Rand Paul has sort of washed himself of a lot of that stuff. Um, but if you look for it, you can still find the stink of it in a lot of his things. He claims to be a libertarian, but the libertarian tradition that he comes from is this very different libertarian tradition than, you know, sort of the libertarianism of Reason Magazine or um, certainly of anyone like Hayek or von Mises and all that kind of stuff. It is this weird sort of Lou Rockwell, I'm not going to explain all of these names, but people who know this stuff know this stuff, it comes from this fringe tradition of libertarianism that um, is a descendant of this idea that somehow the real terrible thing, the real terrible story about race relations in this country is the way the federal government crushed the freedom to discriminate against black people. Um, that, you know, the, that Lincoln is the real villain of the Civil War because he crushed these free, independent states from living the way they want to live. And shouldn't we have, you know, the freedom to live the way we want to live? And then, you know, the terrible thing about the, Civil Rights Acts was the way where, was the way that libertarian freedom to to have Jim Crow was 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 done in by the federal government. These jackbooted thugs who are just telling you that you have to serve black people. And I'm not saying that those are Rand Paul's ideas explicitly, but he comes from that strain of libertarianism and or what they call libertarianism. And it it it's most pronounced in the foreign policy of people like Ron Paul and and Rand Paul. And that doesn't mean they're always wrong about everything or it doesn't mean they don't necessarily make good points. I don't think Rand Paul's stupid. But like, so Rand Paul was asked about Trump's claims of blanket immunity. So reporter Igor Bobik from Huffington Post asked a bunch of people for reactions to Trump's tweet or post or whatever. And Rand Paul's response was, quote, it's a very specific legal argument and I'm afraid I'm just not up on it enough to be able to comment. Now, Rand Paul shut down the Senate in 2013 for a filibuster that was one of the longest in post-war history. It was like just under 13 hours. It was technically to hold up, it was a talking filibuster, right? So it was technically to hold up, I think it was John Brennan um, to be the head of the CIA. And his real point was that he had asked for clarity. Here, I'll read it to you because I, I called it up earlier because I was tweeting about it. Um, he began his filibuster by saying, I rise today to begin to filibuster John Brennan's nomination for the CIA. 
I will speak until I can no longer speak. I will speak as long as it takes until the alarm is sounded from coast to coast that our Constitution is important, that your rights to trial by jury are precious, that no American should be killed by a drone on American soil without first being charged with a crime, without first being found to be guilty by a court. Now, I am entirely in favor of that basic principle that federal government can't kill Americans without giving them a trial, right? And Obama had ordered the killing of, was that a Lockheed? I think that was his name, uh, on foreign soil, who was technically had American citizenship, citizenship, but he had joined Al-Qaeda in much the same way that if an American of German descent or whatever, doesn't have to be German descent, leaves America and joins the Nazis or the SS, you don't need special permission to kill him on the beaches of Normandy or any place like that, right? I mean, he was a, a, a Al-Qaeda combatant terrorist, and we killed him. Now, there are, I have no problem with objections that, okay, maybe we need extra procedures and all that kind of stuff and extra sign-off. Fine, that's all fine. But Rand Paul took that and ran with it as this whole paranoid boob bait thing where he hadn't gotten assurances from the Obama administration, I think from Eric Holder, about whether or not the administration would ever contemplate killing an American on American soil with a drone. The response from the Obama administration, I thought, was entirely defensible. I'm not saying ideal, right? Because it'd be better if just Congress wrote laws to clarify all these things. They can always write laws. But the Obama administration just didn't want to say that if they knew about, if they believed there was an imminent 9-11 or Pearl Harbor style uh, attack on the United States of America, they wanted to hold out for the constitutionality or the legality or the option to kill someone, even if they're an American, um, before they, you know, push the bomb plunger and blow up Pearl Harbor or the World Trade Center or whatever. Again, you can have problems with that. You can say, well, let's put this, let's codify this. Let's put a procedure around this. But spare me the 13-hour self-righteous, sanctimonious, I for one am standing up against constitutional um, hate crime from Barack Obama and his, his perfidious globalist um, administration. And if that's going to be your position, hold it dearly and that's fine. But then when Donald Trump comes along and with his own mouth or his own thumbs declares that he should be immune from all crimes and can kill anybody he wants for any reason, again, that is the upshot of what Trump is saying. Um, and Rand Paul runs away like a scared little kid with his, well, it's, you know, it's a specific legal argument. No, it's, it's, it's really not. And it's really not for anyone who calls themselves a libertarian, right? If you're, if you're actual, any kind of flavor of libertarian, right? Or, you know, civil libertarian, economic, well, maybe not economic libertarian, but certainly like anybody who believes in limited government and constitutionalism of any kind to think that you need more, you need to read some legal footnotes to condemn a statement like that from any presidential candidate is just so grotesquely vapid and cynical. It just disgusts me. You know, um, it disgusts me in a lot of ways. I say Mike Lee disappoints me more than he disgusts me because like I, I had 
considerable esteem for Mike Lee for a while. And I think he's a smart guy. And I think he knows better. And I think he just caved into cowardice, you know, like declaring before the first, before even the Iowa caucus that everyone needs to support Trump because it's already a binary choice. Um, he clearly did it because the Trump people were poking him in the ribs saying you have to do it. Um, Mike Lee just, you know, is is kind of cowardly about this kind of stuff. And it really breaks my heart because he's intellectually courageous from time to time, but politically kind of pathetic. And where I know, maybe he had a statement today. I, I would like to think so. But these people who who consider themselves these fervent, passionate, you know, defenders of constitutional liberty, regardless of partisanship or political cost, who then get, you know, either cotton-mouthed or fawningly obsequious of Donald Trump when he says the quiet parts out loud, it makes it very difficult to take any of these people seriously about anything. And look, look this is just the thing. I mean, it's like some things aren't about teams, and one great test is, um, I mean, I've said it a million times about how I, I really get exhausted with the, what if this had been Obama or what if this had been Trump or what if this had been Bush thing when the party, when the White House goes to another party. Um, it's not that it's a bad point. I get tired with it because it's such an easy point and it's often used for apples and oranges kind of situations. But this is one of these times where like, there's no doubt in my mind that if any Democratic president or Democratic candidate had said anything remotely like this, that um, people like Rand Paul and Mike Lee would be getting their dresses over their heads in outrage and standing vigil at the National Archives to protect the Constitution from these Huns and these monarchists who would would overthrow our our beautiful constitutional republic. But Donald Trump can say this kind of stuff, and it 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 doesn't blip on their radar. And there look there are just some things that you shouldn't have to know whether or not a politician has an R or a D after their name to condemn. And this stuff, and look, if this was an isolated incident and Trump had never said anything else like this before, I wouldn't be making a big deal about it. It's just like, this is not some gaffe or one-off. This is what this guy believes. He is setting himself up to give himself permission to do all sorts of things if he should get elected. And, and it's not insane to think that he should get, that he'll get reelected. And I'm very, I just got back from New Hampshire and it's not like I did a huge amount of shoe leather reporting or anything, but I talked to a lot of people who know, who know New Hampshire. I saw my buddy, Michael Graham, um, and we have reporters on the ground there and we have, we're talking to people who know the state and all that kind of stuff. And it's not looking good for Nikki. I'm not saying she's going to come in third or anything like that, but like she needs to win or I just think this thing is over. Um, I, I think if she doesn't win New Hampshire. And I mean, when, like coming first, I think she probably drops out before South Carolina to avoid embarrassment. It doesn't, I mean, I, I know this, how the scare with her dad happened and I have respect for that, but it just, whether it's true or not that she's kind of choking or, or pulling back from like really running hard, running through the tape for New Hampshire or not, that's the vibe there, right? And that's, if it's not true... It's unfair, but it's also a life is unfair kind of thing because the whole point of this exercise is to um, create the perception of momentum and not hitting the ground 
with that singularly in mind is a mistake. Now, tonight there's going to be a town hall. Um, maybe that'll help turn it around. Who knows? But regardless, I don't think it looks great. That makes me sad. Not because I am some huge um, cheerleader for, for Nikki Haley. She's my first choice of the three who were left. But again, as I was telling Ross the other day, I, you know, perfectly happy to have DeSantis over Trump. And I would have been perfectly happy with all, most of the people in the field um, who ran this time around because I'm not in the position right now of voting for anybody or rooting for anybody. I'm rooting against one person, and that's that's Donald Trump, who I just think would be a disaster for this country if he got reelected. And he, it would be a disaster for conservatism if he got back in office. But regardless, like, I just don't, think it's looking great for her. And, and so I think people are going to, you know, we'll know more by the time I do the next solo podcast, but, um, we'll know a lot more, um, which is one reason to sort of stay off the punditry now, because the, the primary punditry cycle seems to be ending soon. And I got to do more of it on the dispatch podcast in the morning, but I did do a Wednesday G file on a lot of this stuff, sort of really just writing fast because I didn't have a lot of time, uh, to get out my sort of pundit, thoughts in my head onto paper or onto the screen and went through the reasons why I just think it's, or some of the reasons why I just think it's incredibly stupid for the Republicans. Forget, again, forget threats to the Republic, forget the possibility. If he loses, I think there will be considerable domestic political violence in this country. And if he wins, I think lots of bad things are going to happen. I think it's more likely that he loses still. I think it is on the Republican Party's own. So again, forget forget threats to the Republican, all that, just on pure what is a party for kind of stuff. It is incredibly dumb for the Republican Party to renominate a guy who, first of all, will automatically be a lame duck who has been a net drag on Republican prospects in every election where he has been on the ballot, um, at least since 2016 or 2018 who has cost the Republican Party more voters than it's gained. And in its cost itself, again, these are not, this is not moral judgments here, but it's cost the Republican Party better voters in exchange, in exchange for worse voters. And again, I am not saying that rural, non-college educated um, white dudes are worse than suburban, married, college educated married people with kids. Um, I've, you've heard me talk about how I, I like bourgeois values and all that kind of stuff a million times. We don't have to get into all that, but there are a lot of good values in rural America. And you know, a lot of these people, white working class is full of honest, hardworking, decent people who, let's face it, culturally have some legitimate grievances and reasons to be pissed off. But if you're just talking about, you know, sort of in Glengarry, Glen Ross, you know, I need the good leads. I need the, I need the Glengarry leads. Now, the sweet, sweet, good stuff. Married suburban couples with kids are just better voters than um, the ones that Trump is bringing into the, the Republican coalition. They can be counted on to vote reliably. Um, even in midterms, they show up. They give money. Trump is bringing in basically on the force of his own entertainment value. Voters who are unreliable voters who don't show up if he's not on the ballot, who scare away a lot of voters who otherwise would be with the GOP 
And when I say scare away, I don't mean because they smell bad or they look weird or any of that or drive funky trucks or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, the kind of stuff that Trump needs to do to keep those people showing up and being enthusiastic turns off more people than it attracts. I've been writing this now for almost 10 years that Trump is like the salesman who says, yeah, sure, we're losing money on every sale, but we'll make it up in volume. Um, He is shrinking the party. It's becoming a rump party because of him. And the idea that he is going to get, he's going to get a bunch, you know, uh, millions of voters who voted against him in 2020 to vote for him in 2024 strikes me as unlikely. And no, I don't, I, I shouldn't say it like that because he will get millions of voters. The question is, will the majority of the people who voted against him, who let's put it this way, who voted for him in 2016, but then voted against him in 2020, are those people now going to vote for him again in 2024? Do they all regret their votes for Biden or forget all does a, will a majority of them regret their votes for Biden enough to vote for Trump? Maybe I doubt it. And I think, you know, that's a big psychological hurdle to get over to decide, okay, I'm done with this guy and vote against him in 2020. And then all of a sudden be like, you know, I changed my mind again. I'm going to vote for him, you know, because you've, you've made a, you, you, you've made that psychological leap to not care about the partisan stuff and to care about like the thing that pissed you off. The idea that, he gained a lot of voters because of January 6th, which again happened after the election, right? Um, that he gained a lot of voters because of how he's behaved over the last couple of years um, strikes me as unlikely. I get it. Biden's unpopular. He's lost a lot of voters. But right now, the Trump who is dominating the Republican primaries is um, not... The, the, the people that are voted for Trump in Iowa and are going to vote for Trump in New Hampshire, this is a very, very tiny slice of the electorate. And the much bigger slice of the electorate that decides which party gets the majority of the votes is just not engaged in politics right now. And they may say bad things about Biden, but after a billion, two billion dollars in ads of Trump talking about Immigrants poisoning the blood of America, talking about Muslim bans again, talking about how he needs total and complete immunity, talking about how he needs retribution for his political enemies, how because of what Biden's done, he now has the he'll have the right to do the same thing to his political opponents. Plus all of the weird stuff that he's just, you know, says all the time for and go down all these lists, reminding all of those people, plus Trump back being in the spotlight, who knows what he is going to say under pressure, particularly in courts where you're just going to get to the point where all the people who are giving Biden bad approval numbers, you remind all of them about why they were so happy that Trump left. Biden's approval numbers may stay low, but Trump's approval numbers are not going to get over 50. They're going to start plummeting again once this becomes like this choice between what America you want to live in, right? And I think Biden's been, Biden deserves not to run again, deserves not to be president anymore. Um, The Democratic Party should get rid of him in the same way the Republican Party should get rid of him. But like the argument for not running Trump is much stronger in part because you don't have to. Right. He is he's no right, no entitlement to the nomination. There are people running against him, 
Biden's the sitting president of the United States. It's very difficult to tell a sitting president he can't run again, right? I mean, it just doesn't happen. And the violence that Trump is doing to the brand is, to the Republican brand, it just makes it obvious to me that it's not worth taking a flyer on the guy for pure mercenary political reasons. Then you add in all the moral stuff and it's just a no-brainer. But that does not appear to be the choice people are making. The thing I didn't get into in the G-File, I just want to, I might write about this tomorrow, I don't know. I wanted to write about it in the Wednesday one, but I just didn't have time or space left. There's this argument emerging that the Democrats want to run against Trump. They've been orchestrating events so that he will be the nominee. Now, I want to be really clear because this is kind of a subtle point. I agree with, you know, my friends like Andy McCarthy and from what I've seen, Eric Erickson and some others. I agree that it is in the interest of the Democrats, again, taking all morality, all the talk about existential threats to democracy out of the equation, right? And just talking about rolling the dice on your best chance to win. I agree that there's a, there's a lot of evidence that the Democrats want to run against Trump, or there's a lot of reason to think that they'd be smart to want to run against Trump. They certainly did cherry picking in, in 2022, to run against more MAGA candidates than, than traditional mainstream Republicans because the MAGA candidates were easier to beat. And that definitely did happen. You know, that was, you know, they interfered in Republican primaries to help the worst Republican candidates. And that's hardball. That happens. That's happened a lot of times in the past. My only problem with it is you can't say, exist, you can't be screaming existential threat to democracy. These people are literally Nazis. They're going to end democracy. They're going to end our freedoms. They're going to destroy the Constitution. But let's get them nominated because we have this theory that they'll be easier to beat. I mean, you should do everything you can to sort of shut down that movement, even if it comes at the risk of having more competitive races. That's just me, right? Like, you don't want to force in a two-party system, you don't want to force the other party into embracing being what you consider to be a nationalist or Nazi or fascist party. You should have a little more patriotism than that. Because it turns out sometimes that these kinds of calculations, and again, Trump's not Hitler, but these kind of games and these kinds of overthinking things, too clever by half moves, are why Nazis came into power in the first place, right? There was the communists and the Reichstag, who were like first, you know, their motto was first brown, then red. They thought if the Nazis came to power, they would so discredit themselves, then, then the socialists and the communists would just sort of sweep in. Um, there were all these moves by the more sort of conservative, arist aristocratic, Junker kind of uh, leaders to play games with Hitler because they, they thought he was kind of a clown and a buffoon and easily manipulated. And, and instead, he manipulated all of them. Um, and if, if you don't know this, or if you've only been reading sort of pro Hamas, you know, outlets lately, things turned out badly with Hitler. So anyway, Trump's not Hitler, but if you believe, even remotely believe that he is that kind of guy, you should not have as your top priority cynical short-term electoral gain. And that's what they definitely had in 2022. And I think at the margins, there's evidence for that about 2024, where I completely disagree with the sort of hard version of these arguments is that 
you know, Andy had this thing, and stipulate, I, I love Andy McCarthy. He's a friend. He's a great guy. We disagree on a bunch of stuff from time to time, but he's, I don't, I don't know what Gaelic is for mensch, but he's it. I like the guy. Um, and I think he's often very persuasive about a lot of things and he does his homework. I just think, you know, he had the headline of some piece recently. I, I, I hope I'm not, I, I hope I'm not unfairly paraphrasing it, but it was something like, you know, Republicans are falling into Democrats plan. It's the plan part I have problems with when it comes to Trump. Is Andy right or largely right or directionally right or probably right that Trump can't win? Yes. I mean, I, I don't want to say can't, just that it's, it's uh, he's had this position that Trump can't win for a very long time. And sometimes it sounds like it's like the safe harbor way to avoid other criticisms, or maybe it's just in more fairness, it's a best way to persuade people who like Trump that they should just still let go of him. But regardless, Andy's made this case for a while now that Trump can't win. And I think it's, I think he's right. And a lot of other people, right, including me and, you know, the Wednesday G file and elsewhere that, that Trump's odds of winning are sufficient on their own to say, let's go pick somebody else. If you're uh, just a, 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 calculating Republican who just wants to maximize Republican success, Republican, Republican win. And I also think I'm entire agreement with Andy and with a lot of my colleagues here at the dispatch. And again, with myself, cause I've been saying it for a very long time too. I think it's basically conventional wisdom at this point that the indictments, particularly the first one, the Alvin Bragg indictment screwed a lot of things up that, you know, um, DeSantis was, was, was even beating Trump for a while. His when Trump announced he could not get even for you know in from MAGA perspective a lot of A-listers to show up. It was kind of sad and pathetic. Uh, there were there was a lot of grumbling about him in the wake of the 2022 midterms. It was not preposterous uh, to think that Trump had ex- exceeded his shelf life, and I think it is entirely correct that the smarter play for DeSantis would have been, and this is a point that John Podoritz leans on a lot, the smart play would have been from the get-go for DeSantis to stop trying to court Trump fans, but instead trying to explain to their fans why they needed to let him go and saying, look, this guy, he, you can like what he did. I certainly like some of the things he did, blah, 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 but he can't be president again. He'll screw it up. He's not fit. He's, you know, and just try to make Trump radioactive before those indictments came out. And certainly after the first indictment came out, that argument got more difficult. But I also think in retrospect, probably more imperative. But they didn't do it. Instead, they all rallied to Trump. That's when you started hearing all this stuff about how we have to sort of, the party needs to unite around Trump. And that brag indictment, because it was so shabby, and so unnecessary and so clearly political, that's the thing that started the galvanizing um, and the unifying around around Trump in the primaries and turned him into this sort of hybrid de facto incumbent candidate. He wasn't one prior to all of that. And um, Steve Kornacki has, has gone on about this a good bit, about how basically he wasn't a de facto incumbent because he was a former president prior to the indictments. It's the indictments that did it. And I think that's, I think the Bragg indictment, look, I think Trump's guilty. 
I think he paid, gave Michael Cohen money to bribe a porn star that he stooped not to talk about it and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's sort of obvious. And most Trump defenders giggle and titter and think that's awesome and think it's all true. I haven't seen anybody deny, you know, plot, sincerely deny that they think Trump would ever, how dare you, sir, suggest that Donald Trump would betray his third wife with a porn star. But it was a perfect example of a collective action problem where Bragg benefit, Brad ran, Bragg ran on this idea that he was going to go after Trump. Bragg's constituency in New York City wanted him to go after Trump. Uh, the major me mainstream media loved the copy. Uh, I mean, I was on TV sets for days when that thing came out, and I was one of the few voices on set at CNN that was pretty skeptical about it. It's funny now how almost everybody on set is skeptical about it, and the people who are all in on it just aren't talking about it anymore. So the Bragg indictment helped to sort of inoculate Trump from a lot of the future, much more important and more credible criminal charges, like the classified document stuff in particular, but also, you know, the January 6th related stuff, which is a little more convoluted. But obviously, I think he's, he's guilty of the major things, right? Even if there's some legal bootstrapping involved, which is not to say... This is not about the insurrection, by the way. That's a different argument, right? Or whether it was an insurrection under the under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Jack Smith's case doesn't rely on that. So I agree with the analysis that said that these court cases turned Trump into like this sort of hero martyr you know, character on the right and basically turned him into this sort of de facto incumbent. Where I disagree was that was the plan. That... They knew that's how it would work from the beginning, and that's why they did it. I just don't buy it. I don't buy it because, first of all, I've seen no evidence to suggest that's the case, right? I mean, it, this, is a, this is a version of, you know, a form of argumentation that I've criticized many, many times of, you know, cui bono, right? Che paga, as they say in, the Italian, in Italian. Who pays? And the meaning of it is, is like, you look to see who benefits from a set of events and then you say, okay, they must have been the architects of this event. Like, so whenever something seems remotely plausibly uh, good for Israel, some jag off somewhere will say, aha, Israel's behind this, you know, whether it's 9-11 or leap year or whatever, um, because they think Israel benefits from it. And it's a kind of thinking that's sometimes obviously correct, depending on the context and the facts. But more often than not, it's not correct because sometimes events happen that have disparate impacts, disparate sets of beneficiaries and, um, and, and, I don't know, and people who are penalized. What's the opposite of beneficiary? And the idea that Bragg was acting on behalf of some larger conspiracy or plan to turn Trump into the Democrat, into the Republican nominee, I just don't buy it. I don't think, you know, I'm not saying that Bragg is this incredibly honorable, you know, upstanding public servant or anything. I'm also not saying he's not. I'm just saying that, like, his motivations had much more to do with the fact that he ran on prosecuting Trump when there was no real talk about him becoming the nominee. And I've talked to way, 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 way too many liberals who have been shocked 
and for a while used to look at me like I was crazy when I would say that some of these indictments are counterproductive because they're forcing a lot of Republicans to defend Trump who otherwise wouldn't. The idea that somehow they all secretly knew that this is the reaction to, of Republicans, I just don't find plausible at all. Partisan Democrats are really bad at passing Turing tests about how Republicans, never mind really partisan Republicans, are going to react to a lot of things. Or, and moreover, this is just not something that you can have a plan like that. Now, I'm not saying that at the margins, the incentives haven't and the benefits that started to unfold from this haven't influenced behaviors. But and I understand, you know, why it might be persuasive to tell Republicans, hey, you guys are suckers because you're doing exact, you know, you're jumping right into the briar patch the Democrats want you to. I get that argument. I just I don't think Democrats are that smart. I certainly don't think Joe Biden is that smart. I certainly don't think that there was this coordination between Jack Smith, Fawny Willis, Alvin Bragg. Um, there's one other somewhere. And that they were all acting in concert based upon some, you know, star chamber um, over at the DNC saying, okay, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to get him to nominate this guy we think is the next Hitler, but he also has a ceiling of about 46% of the popular vote, so we'll probably beat him. Just doesn't sound plausible to me. The charge that Republicans are making a mistake, and they're making a mistake that is needlessly risky, a real flyer that could get the Democrats to take over the House, the Senate, and the, and the White House. Uh, sure, that's a plausible argument. But like the idea that the, this was this plan, if they were that good at dealing with the mass psychology of Republicans and manipulating them into doing things, they would have manipulated Republicans in doing, into doing all sorts of things that had a much lower risk and a much higher reward. You can't plan something like this. It's, every, it's just a big, giant series of movable feasts with no orchestrating divine or demiurgic or whatever will behind the scenes running everything. I also, I just saw it came up in Slack earlier. There's this argument from the anti-Trump side that I also have some problems with, which is like, um, or a different faction of the anti-Trump side. Uh, David from made this argument, I guess, in the Atlantic. I've heard other people say that there's no reason to believe that Donald Trump would even agree to a, another election once elected or that he would ever agree to leave and he would just become president for life and all that kind of stuff. Now, I want to be pretty clear about this. I think that's wrong. I think, first of all, like, he would have to start planning that two years into his administration because, like, otherwise, they're going to be people running to succeed him and they're going to be talking about getting on the ballots and starting up exploratory committees and all that kind of stuff. And the idea that somehow you could in that environment start moving the zeitgeist into saying, well, you know, I'm not leaving here. I just, I don't think it's likely to happen. The law would say, I mean, forget the section three of the 14th amendment thing. It's just flat black letter law in the constitution in 50 states that Trump would be ineligible to be on the ballot. And the idea that somehow he would just sort of cancel national elections and get away with it, I'm dubious about. But, and this, you know, this is this point I keep coming back to about how, like, Trump doesn't have to be Hitler to still be really bad. Um, it doesn't have to be obvious and a deadlock cinch that Trump will be a dictator to still be really bad and really damaging. 
if there's a 50% chance that Trump will try to be a dictator or be a little dictatorial or a little bit more than a little bit dictatorial, or if he'll entertain the notion that maybe he should cancel the elections, even though he'd fail at that, the violence, disorder, the erosion of trust in institutions that that would sow would be really bad on its own. I mean, this is my problem with a lot of this analysis. I mean, not, not, I mean, not, David Frum's a very smart guy and he gets a lot of stuff right. But like, there is this assumption based in so many of these debates that says, well, the anti-Trump people are wrong because Trump is not Hitler. Therefore, there's nothing to worry about. Or, you know, and I hear this from friends of mine all the time that, you know, Trump would not succeed at being a dictator and so, therefore, we shouldn't be arguing about whether could be a dictator. And let's just think the wrong framing, the wrong way to think about it. The question is, would he try to do some dictator-like things? Not would he succeed. I mean, that's a next threshold question. The question is, would he try? And I think it's obvious that in some, chance, some situations, he would. Um, and maybe they wouldn't be the end of the world kind of situations, and maybe they would just be more blunt and cruder and less sophisticated than the sort of executive order crap that I've been criticizing for 20 years from Democrats and, and from Republicans, right? I mean, fine, but like at some level, do you think it's likely that he would test the good faith and system of trust of the way our system works for his own selfish purposes? And given that he already blew up the peaceful transfer of power in an attempt to steal an election, I just think you have to be in complete denial of the facts and reality to think, to suggest that he would never do something like that, because he did stuff like that. He did something very specific like that already. And he's not going to be surrounded by people who would be restraints on him in a second administration. So it's even more likely that he would start out that way rather than just end that way, which is what happened in the, the first administration. I think the courts would rebuff him. I think our institutions would hold. I think it's very likely that he would probably get impeached again and maybe removed this time. Um, I think he would fail in turning America into autocracy. But the idea that there's no damage done in trying is the, this, this thing that just keeps missing from so many people's analysis. So you don't have to be a full catastrophist, right? I mean, it's like if someone tries to burn my house down, and they fail, and they only burn down my kitchen, that's still bad. It seems obvious to me that Trump would do things to cause damp, further damage to our institutions. I particularly think that he would throw a lot of stuff at the courts, not caring whether they were garbage arguments that will get thrown out or not, because he would win either way. If he gets something past some hack judge, then it's a win. If he gets rejected by the judges, he gets to say, see, the courts are illegitimate too. And then he gets to dine out on that and go demagogue on that stuff. That's what he does with every institution that stands in his way. That's what he does with every politician who stands in his way. And that's what a second term would be all about. And even if he fails, that would be bad enough. Um, what else? Oh, so I did the AMA. I got some feedback about it. Not a lot. Um, I'm still kind of ambivalent on it. Um, but a couple of people asked me about this, the dispatch thing last night, and I got some emails about it. And 
I was talking about how in this, one of the first pieces I ever wrote for publication was in Slate. And it was this piece about um, pushing back on this idea of doggy racism. I don't know, I got some weird criticism from a bunch of different angles. And I think it's just kind of an interesting topic. And it's on my head because I talked about it with some, a couple of people last night. So I'm not a fan of eugenics, right? I think that's pretty clear. Written a lot about it. Um, I'm not a fan of, which is, I'll back up, right? I think there are some things that are, in fact, eugenic, um, that fit the definition of eugenics, that are good and fine, right? You know, like Jews, they have to have specific genetic tests for some, for some, some terrible diseases that run in Jewish families. That's a form of eugenics. I think it's fine, right? I think, you know, prenatal vitamins and all those kinds of things. It's, I mean, it's sort of tendentious to call them eugenics, but, you know, there's a eugenic component to that. Laws against incest are eugenic in the sense that they are inclined towards producing healthier babies, right? So, like, eugenics stripped of all of its political and sinister connotations, it's not a big deal, and there's real science behind it. Now, what I'm not a fan of is, like, the eugenics of the early 20th century, it was full of really crappy science and really and turned into like really evil politics and policy. You know, the the before Jew, before the Nazis killed a lot of Jews, they killed a bunch of disabled people, mentally handicapped people, uh, you know, dysgenic peoples. They had all these phrases, which I can't remember off the top of my head, the German terms for, but it was like life unworthy of life was one of them. Um, useless bread gobblers was another. They sound even scarier and you spit more when you say them in German. And because the Nazis had this really weird mix of, of follow the science, you know, phrenology and eugenics stuff, um, married to this quasi mystical BS um, interpretations of history. Um, and they would go back and forth from one to the other. I've been listening to, you know, this podcast, The um, the Rest is History, and there's stuff about Nazis in power. It's been a great little series lately. I mean, really depressing and hard to listen to at times, but very well done. People know that I know a little bit about the history of fascism and Nazism, and I've had quibbles about because they did a great series on fascism in Britain that I actually learned a lot from, and um, they had stuff on the rise to power of the Nazis a while back. And every now and then there are a the few things I'm like, I can quibble about, but not on the facts, just the sort of on the emphasis kind of thing. It's really well done. It's really conversational. And anyway, they've been talking about a lot of this stuff and the way in which sort of race science really was at the core of what they believed was race science was at the core of the Nazi self-conception about what the Nazi state should be, what the German state should be, what the, what the future of the Thousand Year Reich and all these kinds of things. To be clear, eugenics wasn't just a thing in Nazi Germany. The United States had a very vigorous eugenics movement. You know, Buck v. Bell was one of the most shameful Supreme Court decisions in American history. Probably not as bad as Plessy v. Ferguson or Plessy v. Ferguson, right? I'm not messing that up. Yeah, Plessy v. Ferguson. Whew. I was thinking for a second that Plessy v. Ferguson was the one that overruled it. Of course not. Okay, sorry. Tired. But, you know, that's the one where Oliver Wendell Holmes says three generations of... Uh, of imbeciles is enough and legalize the forced sterilization of basically unfit, low-class white women. You got to remember that Holmes was 
pretty enamored with eugenics. He had these great correspondence with, um, what was it, Sidney Webb about how eugenics was at the heart of real reform. Eugenics was all over the place back in those days. And when I say eugenics, I mean both positive and negative eugenics. So like some of it was just sort of like, and these are, those are technical terms. It's not like good eugenics and bad eugenics, because I think both were kind of bad, but like one involved the forced sterilization and weeding out of the unfit, um, the quote unquote unfit. And the other was more about helping the fit to dominate and populate and all that kind of stuff. If you ever get a chance, um, there's a really brilliant, very thin book called, um, not thin and I'm just short, um, intellectuals and the masses by this guy, John Kerry, uh, that gets into a lot of this stuff and both particularly in England. Um, about how many people were sort of enamored, you know, George Bernard Shaw thought gas chambers were these fascinating, wonderful things that were going to be tools of bringing about, you know, you know, Fabian socialism. And um, it was really all over the place. Even Winston Churchill was the head of, or the vice chair of some eugenic society. He, I think, just because it was like all the rage scientifically, I, I've, I've never seen anything that cast anything more sinister on him. But anyway... Why am I on all this? Okay, right. So one of the things that um, is really kind of fascinating as an intellectual history kind of thing is the relationship between canine eugenics and human eugenics. Because what happened was like, so dog breeds are the product of really vigorous eugenics. Selecting for certain traits doing terrible things to the puppies who don't have those traits and then repeat and repeat with inbreeding and all these kinds of things. So you get these exactly the kind of traits to the point where some dog breeds look like a different species than other dog breeds. And then you can, you can actually start selecting for certain behaviors. It gets all very kind of like nervous making encroaching on Lamarckianism and all these kinds of things. Right. But like they can, they literally bred dogs that, pointed when they saw food like that's not a trait that you learn in a natural environment you know like dogs would would canines canis familiaris would never have appeared in the evolutionary record if every time they saw food go by they just pointed at it and said man look at that thing i bet it's delicious as it flew away right but you can breed these behaviors into dogs i mean like border collies they they did all sorts of things with their prey drive to make them herd things without actually killing them, which is like an amazing thing. And again, border collies are among the most impressive animals on the planet. Um, they really are a sort of super canine, you know, one day we'll all be working for them or dead by their paws kind of creatures. But eugenics can work when you have no concern for forced breeding for the killing of offshoots that you don't like and all of that kind of thing. When you can really sort of play mad scientist with dogs. That's not how it works with humans. I remember I wrote about this stuff, you know, 20 years ago and people would say, you know, but, oh, you're, you don't understand if, if dog eugenics works, that means it could work for humans too. And I don't dispute that, like, if you could hold people against their will in prisons and labs or dungeons or whatever and 
force them to reproduce for generation after generation, killing all the offspring or sterilizing the offspring that don't have the traits that you want, that you could come up with something weird, you know, some island of Dr. Moreau light kind of thing with human beings. But like, that's not how human populations work. This idea that group traits like blonde hair or whatever are the equivalent of like the difference between a German shepherd and a poodle is just garbage. It just doesn't work. But Francis Galton and was it Carl Pearson, Carl Pearson and these guys who were like the inventors, you know, Francis Galton invents the term eugenics. He's also basically the founding father of statistics, truly a brilliant guy, but bought into a lot of creepy ideas, as did this guy, Carl Pearson, who was his protege. And Pearson was a rabid anti-Semite. I can't remember if Galston was, but they bought into all this race science stuff and they thought it was that the analogy from dog breeding was the same thing with human beings. And they were just wrong about this. And there was this guy, was something Whitby, who wrote some of the foundational books on dog breeding, who was also totally into eugenics and made the same arguments about human beings. And there was a lot of this weird fit family stuff in the United States in the 1920s and um, 1910s. Um, and Hitler was a fan of this would-be guy and got a copy of his book and believed in all of this stuff. And anyway, I just, I bring it up because I think people thought that I was either giving short shrift the real differences between humans and dogs or, do- or between different dog breeds and whatnot. You know, like I was accused of canine racism. Or I, was, I shouldn't say I was accused of canine racism. I was criticizing in that slate piece 25 years ago, 30, Jesus, 30 years ago, this idea that you couldn't generalize about dog breeds. And that if you do so, you're, you know, you should, you should judge each dog by the content of its character, not the color of its fur, right? Is sort of this idea. And that just doesn't work. That doesn't mean that there aren't really incredibly sweet pit bulls and really mean pit bulls. And same thing for every dog breed. But at a level of generalization, you can make assumptions about certain dog breeds because they're dog breeds. They were bred to have certain traits. That's the reason why they're breeds. And that's the other thing is that like people took from back then, you know, this this Crystal Palace dog show in 1899, I think. There was this, you know, this weird false false analogizing between human races are human, yeah, races, you know, to speak up, you know, Jews, Aryans, Negroes, you know, whatever, Caucasians, um, Asiatics, whatever. And like German shepherds versus Samoyeds versus Schnauzers or whatever. That was just all garbage. Moreover, the actual evidence is that interbreeding, intermarriage, you know, mongrel vigor is a thing because if you get populations that only sort of reproduce amongst themselves, instead of getting sort of, you know, Nazi supermen, you get all sorts of, you know, inbred genetic problem. So anyway, my point is, is that, yeah, genetics is a thing. And because genetics is a thing, you can extrapolate from that, you know, certain possible group differences over time. But the way real populations work, if you've ever done Ancestry.com or anything like that, you find out you got all sorts of stuff in you that, you know, you're not 
most people aren't actually the pure German or Nordic this or the pure that. They got all sorts of stuff because human populations have moved around a lot over the last, you know, 10, 15,000 years. And this idea that somehow there are these pure races and these pure sort of subspecies of human is garbage. But there are like fairly pure subspecies or, or breeds of dog. And one of the things I've always found fascinating, you know, I, I thought for years about writing a book about dogs, is that how weakly held that stuff is in dog genetics. If you took a bunch of basset hounds, German shepherds, toy poodles, you know, labs, Great Danes, whatever, pick these really, you know, all the dogs that you recognize from dogs playing poker and you put enough breeding pairs of them on an island, some would die out. I don't think bulldogs would do very well in the wild. And we've so horribly abused the breed that most bulldogs and most basset hounds, I think, certainly most bulldogs, and I think a lot of basset hounds have to be born by C-section now. The bulldogs can't fit, heads can't fit through the birth canal. But regardless, like you put all these different breeds on an island and come back, I don't know, five, ten generations later, and most of the dogs you see on the island are going to look a lot more like uh, my dingo um, or a street dog from Caracas or, or Kiev than they look like any distinct breed. Because, like, the dog that dogs want to, like, the inner dog, the ur dog that um, wants to be the gene expression of dogs looks a lot like my Carolina dog. That's why, you know, when you look, go around the world, so many of the stray dogs look the same. I mean, the colors might vary from time to time and, all, and the patterns and all that kind of stuff, but they, there's a certain ratio of nose to snout to eyes and all that kind of stuff that looks very close and maybe not as pretty um, as my Carolina dog because that's like, that's what dogs want to look like genetically. And the variations that give you the poodles and the Great Danes and all that kind of stuff, they would not survive on their own that long. Because first of all, like, there's nothing about these dogs that says, you know, that says, oh, I'm only attracted to other, you know, you know German shepherds aren't like, I'm only romantically interested in other German shepherds or anything like that, you know, um, to their credit. And so like the, the breeding stuff that was the, provided this false metaphor for so many, and it wasn't just dogs, you know, it was cows and livestock and all that and horses, but, um, that provided these false metaphors for human breeding and eugenics just doesn't even really apply to these dogs. Because like, even though I think you can make the case that, you know, Border Collies, Belgian Malinois, and German Shepherds are something close to the master race of the canine world. They don't think so. They don't feel that way. And left to their own genetic biological imperatives, which were so central to the worldview of, of, of Nazis and eugenics and, and all these kinds of people, they would interbreed away their um, genetic distinctiveness as quickly as the opportunities arose. Okay, I realize this is pretty niche stuff, but um, I was just getting into some arguments with people and I thought I would just sort of get it all out there. All right, I've talked long enough. I think some people could say with, with plausibility that I've talked too long. Again, thank you to everybody who showed up at the dispatch meetup. Really, just really um, gratifying to talk to some of these people um, and to sort of, hear their weird stories about how they first 
when and how they first started reading me. And, and it's not just me, you know, I mean, Steve and Sarah have their own conversations with people that are similar. It's just that like, I have people coming up to me saying, you know, they started reading me 25 years ago or something. And that just kind of freaks me out and it's cool and weird. And, um, and lots of great feedback about the, about the remnant. As I told these guys in the audience last night, the people who are most passionate about the dispatch are also by far our most important marketing tool. Like just word of mouth is like incredibly important and valuable to us. And the people who get what we're trying to do are also the people who get how to sell what we're trying to do and convert people to become subscribers, members, whatever. I'm not going to ask everybody who listens to this to subscribe. If you don't already, though, that would be great. But if you can help proselytize what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it, it would help a lot. And, um, and I'd be grateful and I'm grateful to all of you. And, uh, with that, I'll talk to you next time.